like a lot of great ideas come from when there's cross-pollination. And so, and a lot of people tend to look, we stay in their own lane. We talk to the same people who share our same beliefs. We, we, we don't really push ourselves outside the comfort zone, but innovation by, by virtue of it requires going outside your comfort zone. It requires ideas from outside. Um, it requires to make a proactive effort to, um, to sharpen your lens, right? Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahel Badruddin, and joining us again for part two is Shama Heather, award-winning CEO of Zen Media and honored both at the White House and the United Nations as one of the top 100 entrepreneurs in the country. Uh, Shama, it's great to speak with you again. Uh, thanks for having me. Shama, I actually think we should start with the most important question first. You didn't have anything to do with the social media outage. Um, yes, I, I, I don't think so. I guess it's always possible. <laughs> Our clients break the internet every now and then. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I'm going to hand it to you. I want, I want you to tell our audience your story. So I know you wrote your graduate thesis on Twitter when it had about 2,000 views. It was the early days of social media and digital marketing, and there were no jobs in the industry, as you say. So you started your own company, uh, Zen Media. Can you tell us a little bit about the success and stumbling blocks of your journey and achievements? Yeah, so I'll start at the at the beginning, Sahil, when where all things start, which is not as successful, right? So <laughs> what the baseline looks like. Um, yeah, listen, look, I, I moved here, I moved to the States when I was nine years old. I was a, a very kind of typical immigrant kid moving here story. Um, I managed to get a ride to the University of Texas. Austin, so I went there for my bachelor's, and then I ended up getting my master's in organizational communication and technology, which is a mouthful. Uh, but yeah, you're right, you know, I did my thesis on Twitter when it had about 2,000 users. So really early days, I just had a lot of faith in social media. I felt like this was going to be a game changer in terms of how we communicate. You know, some of um, that was the time where Twitter was faster than when, than the AP. So before news broke. How could this not change everything, right? And I, by the way, I'm still very gung-ho on the platform. I think it's, I think it's a very powerful platform. I mean, the challenge is when you're 22 years old and you discover something that you, you know, sometimes it takes the world a little bit to catch up to it. And that was certainly the case for me because when I graduated, I thought I'd go work for, you know, I thought I'd go work for a bean and McKinsey. Like I, I'd go work with some these consulting companies or something in this realm. And of course, I was told, over 18 companies, by the way, had rejections from over 18 companies that said, you know, we just don't think that this is going to be around very long. And by that, in social media, they're like, we think this is a fad. Just don't see this. You know, we're not investing in it, right? We're not. We're not. And uh, and so it was really disheartening, to be honest, because you know, when you study something, you're passionate about it. You're like, wow, this is so exciting. And then to have kind of what you perceive as uh, the gatekeepers say, you know, we just really don't think that this is this is where things are headed. And of course, right. I mean, so I can't complain about that eventually. But uh, but when I when I started, you know, so I had not I had a choice, right? So either kind of give in to what the current rhetoric was, put this aside because yes, it was cool, but maybe didn't have necessarily a future, or put out my 
and they're all about protecting whatever they built. Small businesses, on the other hand, tend to get very innovative. So they were like, look, I don't know what the social media stuff is, but if it gets customers in my door, in my door like, I'll do it, right? So that's, that's great. So that's really where we started, got some of our first customers, grew from doing social to more marketing and, and PR, and um, today work with a variety of tech and, and predominantly B2B business-to-business companies. Um, so that media grew. We hit our first million rather quickly. And and just never looked back. So that's that's been my journey. But you know, like any entrepreneur will tell you, it's got a lot of macro ups and downs, and it's got a little everyday micro ups and downs. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, no, I completely understand. Um, I think you you talk a lot about micro interactions and kind of who you become in the process. Um, I think that's definitely see your story as well, where. It's, it's about who you're becoming in the process as you're kind of starting your own company, going through the, the self-doubt and challenge of is it going to succeed or is it not going to succeed? How did you kind of deal with the nights when you thought that you ha- you were questioning whether this was going to be successful? Are you asking, Kyle, like, how did I know that I was going to make it? Yeah. How did you know that this was the right path? Did you, did you at any point say, no, maybe I should just go back to work for Bain or Look, I mean, the honest answer is I didn't know, right? Most things we do every day, I don't know. But I think the, the difference is I never let the fear bother me. And I think this is some, the beauty of, I will say this, this is the beauty of having parents who really support you. It's coming from a place where you're not punished for when things don't work out. Because so I thought, listen, I'm 22. I, I'm i very lucky in that I had a full ride. I paid off school. I don't have any loans. They didn't have that financial burden over me and I thought if everything sucks you just start over right and I think part of me still has that attitude so I it's not like a matter of like this has to work because why does anything have to work it doesn't and I think that's kind of the fun playful attitude that helps when you're in business because otherwise I think the pressure would just be too much but if you kind of hold it lightly and say yeah these are the things I want to do how do I show up and I've changed a lot. You know, it's funny because who you become in that process of, of making your first million. Um, and my husband and I, we talk about this a lot because he has a similar trajectory. And we were actually just at the Inc. 5000 event for his company. Uh, they, they made the 8000 list for the seventh year in a row. And I, it's something I'm very proud of. But we talk about this. It's not just about the money. It's who you become in that process, the things you learn, these micro lessons. And I still feel like now to get to the next level, you know, the 10, 50 million, whatever it is, it's again requiring an entire leveling up as a person, as a leader, as, as you know, tolerance for risk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all these things really come to play. So I would be lying if I ever told you, oh, yeah, I knew, I always knew. And it's funny because people would tell me and people still do. They'd be like, I always knew. And I'm like, that's great. I wish that you could have shared that with me because I certainly didn't. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So a lot of our audience members, including myself, we, we'd like to learn of how to gain tractions in terms of building, you know, strategic brand in our social media platforms, right? Could you speak a little bit about how we can use social media for that effectively? Like, how do we go on about obtaining a larger following? I'm, ha- I'm happy to break this down by tool, too, so we're more specific. Sure. So, well, let me speak broadly to this, Al, because a lot of people want to build an awareness on social, right? Or, I mean, and look, it, it's amazing. You have you have unprecedented reach today. Like, you can do, you can reach any audience you want. It, it really is 
mind-bogglingly amazing. At the same time, the thing that most people are kind of loath to do or just don't do for multiple reasons, and this is really part of the success, is consistency, right? Consistency is the thing that allows you to get out there and learn and do things. And so when people look at me and they say, oh, how did you build such a following? Or like, how do you have like 640,000 people on LinkedIn follow you? I've been creating content on LinkedIn for 10 years, 10 years, right? And right. so I just want to highlight that, that it, there is a consistency that's required here to be successful at whatever level and, you know, that you're, you're looking to do. Now, of course, if it's a business and you're like, hey, you can do some organic content and use advertising, obviously, as leverage. In business and marketing, everything is either time or money. So as you're growing, and this is why companies like Uber and stuff scale, because they throw money at it, and it does solve a key issue, right? Because they don't have the time to, to grow it sort of organically over time. So I'm giving you both the answer. If you're starting out, you have time. Like, everyone has the same 24 hours in the day. You use that time to build up your base. Um, as you grow, you can, not to say it's an, it, you know, it's an alternative, because, of course, aside from consistency, you do need to figure out who is your audience. So a lot of times people go on social and they're like, I want to be, I want to do this. And it's like, okay, but who are you speaking to? When I speak, I'm very clear. Like, I know my my audience is entrepreneurs, it's brands. When I, you know, we write present in media, it's like we know we're talking to tech companies. We know the challenges when it comes to B2B companies. We're very specific in, in the audience. I think that's the other part. It's like consistency. The second is audience. Who do you want as your tribe? And look, there was a really great article, um, style not too long ago. Well, it is a long time ago, but it gets referenced a lot. And Wired, um, a really cool guy. Uh, and he wrote about this idea of 1,000 fans, saying that, listen, if you just get 1,000 people who love what you do and appreciate your content, that's really all you need. And he found this because he looked at bands, like music bands. And, you know, look, there's there's really three categories of, of music. And I'm, I'm a, this is a very broad generalization, but I'm hoping the story will help. You have, like, the Taylor Swift and the Coldplay's of the world, right? You have, like, that top echelon, 0.001%. They obviously have huge brands. Then mm-hmm. you've got kind of the, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who just play for fun or it's a hobby and they've never made a dive or they're never going to make much with it. But then you, in the middle, you actually have a slew of great fans that make a living from it. They're not the 1%. They're not winning the Grammys every day. But they're all making, they're, they're running their livelihood doing something they love. So it's like, well, what is it about those fans? Well, what it is is that they have that core community of people who love what they have to offer. They've got those thousand fans that buy every album, buy every t-shirt, buy, you know, anytime they do something, these thousand people show up. And so I think part of social isn't just how do I get lots of followers, it's how do I build, I know, like one of the reasons I, you know, I, I, I agree to this is because you ask really good questions, you do your research, you know your audience, and I think, you know, that shows a lot of respect for people's time, it, you come prepared. So there's something that you have to really think about your audience. And that brings me to the third point, so consistency, audience, and value, right? What are you going to give people on social? Everybody spends time thinking about what they want. I want more reach. I want more followers. I want more likes. Okay, okay, okay. But what are you, what are you bringing to the table? And so right. I think it's really...
really important for you to say, I have this audience. How am I going to create value? And look, some people do it through entertainment. Some people do it through education. Some people do it through, there's so many ways to do it. And TikTok proves it, Instagram, like everything proves that you, there's a million ways that you can do cool stuff, right? Right. Um, you really just got to figure out how you're going to, so what your audience, what value are you going to, you know, provide? And you're going to do it consistently. And then everything else is about tweaking that. So, you know, on LinkedIn, for example, I'll try different formats. I'll change up my posts. I'll do a video. I'll do a personal story. I'll play with, like, kinds of when I post. All these things are like little levers that you can use to help amplify what you're doing. But the foundational stuff that's really important. No, that's really insightful. Uh, let's talk about trends. Uh, could you share trends that you see happening for social media in the next five to 10 years? Do you see the industry pivoting in any specific direction? And I guess like, you know, in my mind, I, I look at tools like Clubhouse, the social audio app and TikTok, which have kind of taken off in the social media world. Do you see, wh- where do you see the direction headed? So, how uh, five, 10 years is a long time. You realize that in our, in our world, things change so quickly. Like, <laughs> how, about, how about I tell you the next two or three years? How about that? Much more about the the scale and reach, and so 
going to require a complete different lens to be able to legislate some of these things because you can't come across it and say, oh, you're, you've gotten too big in terms of revenue or <laughs> that's, that's not the game. Um, yeah. so, so anyway, so I think there, that's going to be some interesting, um, that's going to be an interesting area to watch. And of course, look, I think NFTs, this whole world, again, this metaverse, and it's the younger generation that's really used to it. For a lot of us, it seems kind of like obscene to think like, you spend what on a digital good? Like you can't, it's an intangible, but we're going to see this more and more because look, at the end of the day, most tangible things are also just status symbols. And so the younger generation that's growing up with Roblox and Minecraft and all of these things, they're like, of course, these are just our status symbols. So anyways, not to blow your mind too much, but these are just some of the things that I think are, um, and remember I said three years, so I'm not thinking this is five or 10 years. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I hear you. I hear you. I, I mean, I don't want to talk about this in detail, but I know there are big issues in terms of how like, you know, some of the big tech companies and social media companies and how they're regulating speech, right? I think that's a big issue and how we're going to actually kind of solve some of those things in terms of filtering or mitigating even perspectives and viewpoints, right? I think I think those are things we're seeing. It, to relate Related to your question, I want to talk about the post-pandemic world. Do you see social media changing in, in terms of the post-pandemic world? Or it's, it's still some of the things you mentioned about two to three years from now? Same same kind of changes. So when you say changes, and Kyle, maybe we should have done this in the beginning, and, and I apologize for not doing it, but I just want to define kind of how I see what social media means to me, right? right. Because people look at social media and they think it means platforms like TikTok or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. But the truth is, these, that's just one very narrow definition. Those are social platforms. To me, the definition of social media is people are the media. Like, that's a very different concept. So if you ask me how has how is that going to change, it's already changed. Look at everybody working from home. Look at everybody, like, engaging with different things across the board, right? Like, this idea that people are the media and how do we use that to get things. And we know this because look how fast information travels for better or for worse. Anything that happens on one flight on any airline is next day something everyone's talking about. How is that possible when there's only like maybe four people that actually witness that, right? And yeah. so to me, that's really the true power of, of social and that's kind of what's often missing. So yeah, do I think that's going to change? Absolutely. I think what's going to change even more than just the platforms themselves, we're going to embrace more and more hybrid work. I think that's, that's going to be our norm. So I don't think we go back to what it was. Um, you know, I just think that's, uh, that's the answer. You mentioned the platforms uh, earlier and what social media means. Are there certain mediums you think that are really powerful right now, perhaps TikTok? Where, where do you see the me like me the mediums being used? I think there's some great mediums out there, but you've got to think about again, for what? Right? So TikTok is awesome, especially for consumer brands. Um, I think in some ways it's a tougher nut to crack because the audience younger and they're more cynical. <laughs> so you can't you know, you you really ha you have to have a different approach. Now, you can, anyone can go viral on TikTok, but is that what you really want? So you've got to think about like, okay, I can do something on TikTok and like a dance video, but then what is that? Why? 
right. So, about brand, right? Yeah, so thinking about, like, again, what do you want to accomplish? Because I think it's funny because I think when social came out, and for a lot of us, part of it is, like, we're just trying to figure it out. We're just trying to figure out, like, how do how does this world work? Where I think the next generation will be a lot more intentional about how this world works. And so TikTok, obviously, LinkedIn, I'm just a huge fan of. I think it's such an underrated tool. Um, I'm, I'm amazed by some of the connections I've made there, the, you know, the ability. Like, I really do think it's one of the most professional, non-kind of antagonistic. Like, of course, every, you know, every platform has its um, pros and cons, but it's, it's something as a professional network I'm just a fan of, and I encourage even young people, like, you're in high school, I'm like, set up a profile. It's a great way to start networking. Um, you know, we we hired someone, this was a funny story, so she did a project on, she had a book report, she chose my book and did a book report on my book and me, and then her professor was uh, found me on LinkedIn, and she tagged this young woman, she was in college, and you know, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great, uh, great presentation. I thought she did great, great job. And then the young woman, her name's Erica, she reached out to me and, you know, was like, hey, I, I just wanted to say thank you. And when she graduated, um, luckily, right before she graduated, she had an internship lined up, the pandemic hit. So she reached intern for us. We have remote internship. So she ended up interning for us ended up working with us and has already been promoted. So like LinkedIn is just a, such a powerful platform um, and, and a very underrated one. No, I, that's, that's, I think that's really powerful. The question was, how do I present myself through social media to stand out? And do you have any tips on personal branding? And I guess the one thing I would add here is um, how do we become more self-aware of the content that we put out there because you know the given given the nature of the internet it might be there for a lifetime yeah so i mean look i I think far as like keeping away from topics that you feel uncomfortable talking about like you know i don't discuss politics or religion there's certain things i i don't really talk about um and it's not because i don't have a point of view it's irrelevant to my audience my audience doesn't care what my like political beliefs so or maybe they do but so I think it's important to figure out what your boundaries are and again what what value does your audience want from you so even if you have a personal brand being strategic about it and saying look I work at a bank for example and my goal really is to move up in this organization well great so then figure out who the stakeholders are who's your CMO who's your VP who's your boss's boss find them on LinkedIn engage with their content get on their radar like an old school way we used to say, you know, the, the elevator thing, right? Enter an elevator, your boss enters, and then you have 30 seconds, it's literally called the elevator pitch. Well, on LinkedIn, you have access to all these people going up and down the elevator all day long, and it's completely normal. It's not like you're that creepy person jumping in the elevator. It's really completely normal for you to reach out and engage, but again, you want to come at it from a perspective of adding value. So before you ask them something, engage with their posts, make sure that they've seen your name, make sure that you've added something of benefit to their network. Right. I think that's powerful. Let's talk about email, like, you know, old school emailing. I've seen, I get emails from you. I got an email from you today. What do you, what's your view on emailing and newsletters uh, as well? Yeah, look, I think email is not dead. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's 
very much alive and, and kicking. I think the bar for emails is higher, meaning, look, the bar for everything is higher. You could get away with doing, remember when, like, we had GeoCities or Angel Cities, like, early days of the internet? You could put up anything and it'd be cool because there were only, like, six other websites to compete with. But today, competition is so high. The bar is high. So if you are going to do email marketing, again, there's no shortcuts for good content. And I think a lot of it comes down to that style is, like, in, look, you do these interviews. I'll ask you a question. How much time do you spend preparing and researching for the people that you interview? Uh, it varies, but I do spend quite a bit of time. I do look at their previous interviews. I look at, I do my research in terms of their thoughts on different ideas. And because I, I, in my, in my view, I want to do an interview that's unique. I don't want to do an interview where they've set this, where they've said something already. Right. And so I, I do my homework in that sense. Yeah. So hours, is that fair? Yeah. Hours or more depends. Yeah. The thing about all these people that, you know, do podcasts or whatever, and they don't put in that time, and it shows. So, you know, when you reached out to me and you were like, hey, I said yes, because I knew the question. Like, I knew you weren't going to ask me something that was totally Googleable, right? I knew that the questions you were going to ask came from a place of of research and came from a place of of valuing the audience and, and respect. So, same goes with email. I think you have to respect people's inboxes. I think... And look, it doesn't have to be valuable to everyone. The things that I send can be total spam to some people. But if you're building a brand, a business, this stuff is valuable. So we think, again, you have to think about your audience. And with email marketing is very powerful. Also, consistency. If you send out one email every six once six months, it's not going to do anything. Right? Like, if you send that email out every week, people know what to... Look, we're... If the pandemic has hi- highlighted anything... I will say that I find people even more wary of uncertainty and not wanting to have, they want, they want more certainty. So if you can provide more certainty, if you in any way can give like that consistency, that is a natural win. Let me talk about innovation now. We, we still get, we've spoken about this a little bit before, but you, you mentioned that during a crisis is when you see a lot of innovation happening. Um, and then furthermore, you talk about, you know, that institutions or organizations need to create a space of psychological safety, if I may say, um, mm-hmm. or, in a, or, 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 or as the imam says, enabling environment, perhaps, where people feel like they're able to make mistakes, they're able to share their ideas openly without criticism, they're able to be authentic, uh, and that's where you kind of see innovation taking place. Do you uh, want to add just thoughts on how um, or insights on, on this space of innovation? Yeah, so innovation is a, is a God, it's become such a buzzword, right? Silence like authenticity. Right. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it gets, yeah, it dragged out a lot and kind of grown really, really. Um, here's my best source for, for innovative ideas. How about I put it that way? My, I feel like a lot of great ideas come from when there's cross-pollination. So what I find fascinating, and I didn't even know about this about you until Adol read your bio, was that you have a background in chemical engineering. You have, <laughs> you know, you what are your other degrees in history? So, like, that's fascinating to me. You have 
a lens nobody else does because you've got chemical chemical engineering and history. So like combined, that just gives you a very different perspective on certain things. And I think that's where innovative ideas come from. And so, and a lot of people tend to look, we stay in their own lane. We talk to the same people who share our same beliefs. We, we, we don't really push ourselves outside the comfort zone, but innovation by, by virtue of it requires going outside your comfort zone. It requires ideas from outside. Um, it requires to make a proactive effort to, um, to sharpen your lens, right? So, I, I do think, and this is something advice I give to all young people is, boys, study different things. You know, like I think so many times, often even culturally, it's like study science or study this, study this one thing. But it actually doesn't lead to like the future doesn't belong to people who studied one thing and have also. We AI is going to change a lot of that. Automation is going to change a lot of that. The future really belongs to people who can bring very disparate things together and build something new. That kind of creativity is something that we should really be looking at fostering. Mm, no, I agree. I agree. I'm going to shift our conversation, and I think we have a lot of parents in the audience. We have people who work with children. So I'm going to shift our conversation to just social media and about children and maybe some of the detriments. And we've spoken a little bit. Yeah, about this before. But first, I actually want to ask you, how do you manage to be a CEO of a company, be a mother of two? How, how do you juggle everything? A ridiculous amount of help. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Sahil, that is the honest answer. Um, don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. I will say this to everybody who maybe struggles with having a family and juggling work-life balance. You have to do what's right for you. And only you know what's right for you. I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of people will think I'm a bad mother, people will blah blah blah. And I just I think I think that's really sad. I think you have to do what's right for you. So look, my husband and I, we both run companies, we both both work full time, we both have a lot of employees that we're responsible for and their livelihoods and so forth. And we love our kids, but we're, we have a lot of responsibility, so we have a lot of help, you know, and, um, and we're okay with that. It works for our family. Um, we're, I am, you know, there's certain things that are very important to me. So with my son, like, I love picking him up from school. Every day in my calendar, that part is blocked out because it's just special. I, I like, and, you know. There might be maybe two or three days in a year where I don't get to pick him up from school, but I like having that time with him. Um, but we have someone, you know, we, we have a lot of help around the clock just because that's what it takes to do all the things we want to do. And in the future, if that changes, if it's going to be a trade-off, I think it's really true. Look, you can have everything, but you can't have everything at the same time. So, so I think that's, that's really important. And, you know, it's something I, I juggle with daily like I think that sense of like am I doing enough for my kids am I doing enough at work and what I've learned is some you're a rock star at work and some days you're a rock star at home yeah. it's a very nice day those both occur at the same the same day but that's usually not my experience got it no I, I have uh, nothing but respect for everything everything you do there's this um, there's this saying where don't force your children to behave like you for surely they have cre- they've been created for a time which is different than your time. 
which I kind of find funny because we just talked about how fast things are changing. You can't even predict five to 10 years from now, right? So fast. And in a previous conversation we had, you spoke about how children should find better coping mechanisms. And when they use social media, they use social media as a tool perhaps to escape and it becomes a form of addiction, which can be detrimental to their mental well-being. What uh, additional advice I would say would you give to our audience about either raising or working with children in the digital age? Yeah, and I'll tell you, I thought about this a lot as a parent too, right? My kids are very young right now. Um, The biggest challenge, I think, with technology and social and all of this is that just like for us adults, because we're all guilty of it, right? It can be a distraction. It can be a distraction. I mean, look, I'm guilty of it. You know, I'm I'm tired. I really should just be going to sleep. But instead, I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm looking at these things. And then I catch myself and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, kind of mindlessly doing this. And so right. I snap out of it. Um, so we as adults, we all have these kind of holes we fall into. The difference is, as an adult, you know, like, okay, what am I doing? You can catch yourself quicker. And what's really important in, in childhood development, and I'm not an educator, this is just my kind of research and experience, is that those kind of years between 12 and 18, maybe a little bit even younger, but like those kind of teen years where you really go through some challenging times, right? So maybe your first heartbreak, a friend hurts you, like you're really learning some tough, challenging life lessons. But as you learn those life lessons, what we have what we call coping mechanisms. And so what they find, for example, with alcohol use or drug use, not, you know, if kids start very young or they get into those habits in those teen years, the problem isn't so much the substance itself, which is a separate issue. It's that now that is their coping mechanism at the, and they have not developed healthy ways to cope with their stress. Now, when they do it past that age, the point of that is, now, they may do it for recreation or various other reasons or just making, you know, whatever choices they may choose to make in life. You already have some strong, healthy habits, ideally, that help you deal with stress. And so I think sports for kids really great because it gives them an outlet. So kids need healthy outlets to manage stress. Um, and I think parents do have to be an example. You know, how much do we scroll on the phone with the kids? I think there's something to be said about dinners without phones, whatever. Like, look, I, I don't have all the answers to this. I just, I know with my kids, I'm hoping that they will delay using social media as gratification or kind of, um, you know, like, like I'm very, one of the things I think about, and it's so funny because my son is only two, I'm like, you know, when he wants to ask a girl out, I'm going to insist that he do it in person. Because otherwise, he's never going to have the skill right? He's never going to know how to talk to a girl. And there's plenty yeah. of men right now that don't know how to text. Or like, they know how to text. But face-to-face, it's very unnerving. Same right. with jobs. You have a lot of young people right now who don't have good interpersonal skills. And that's a challenge. That's, you know, and so, um, so yeah, these are the types of things that occupy my brain. No, I think it's great. Related to that, I actually, I don't know if you've heard of this author named Cal Newport. He has a book on uh, digital minimalism. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. 
So there's this interesting quote from his book I'll read because of the community we have. He says, common to to many religions is an emphasis on contemplative practices, turning one's focus inward into a search for transcendent insight. I stumbled across a growing tension between social media and religion and discovered that the amount of attention the book was receiving from religious circles. The issue that kept arising is the way in which social media's distraction corrodes the contemplative life. One of the consequences is an ever-present source of attention, snagging, noise, is that quiet mind for contemplation disappears, right? Really interesting, right? So he's kind of saying like, when you're in this, like, like it's like taking away from your meditation practices kind of thing. Have you reflected about this at all? Yeah, I mean, do you, you're asking if I've meditated on it. <laughs> no, I was, yeah, I'm hoping you could share some best practices, perhaps you, you've advised others or you found yourself, yeah. Oh, man, um, I will tell you, you know, again, making things harder is actually a really great practice. Uh, for example, I don't have Facebook on my phone. I deleted the app because I really don't need it. I can log on, with, you know, I log on to the computer when I need it. So um, it's funny because I don't use, yeah, I don't actually use social media for personal as much. Like I have WhatsApp with my family. I've got a couple of, you know, chats here and there. But really, I, I use it for work. I've got that audience. I have the brain and so forth. Um, another, like, I think it's often the things, that we do are the things that are easiest. So that's why I say, like, if you're trying to lose weight, don't have snacks in your house that are unhealthy. You, you know, keep your gym clothes ready because, like, the the easier you make it for yourself, the easier it'll be. So it just depends. Um, one of the things I did on my phone, which is so simple, is rather than have all the icons, I had all these crazy icons, I created folders and I put icons in the folders. I have a folder that says shopping. So rather than when I just go click on an icon, I'm like, oh, let me browse. Now I have to be a little more purposeful and say, do I want to shop right now? Or am I just clicking this app because it's... No, I hear you. I hear you. I think the last question I have is about um, related to echo chambers and maybe post-fact society. And it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a difficult question. And I'm actually going to use uh, the imam's words on this. He made a speech at uh, Brown University. I don't know if you've seen it. But where he says more information at our fingertips can mean more knowledge and understanding, but it can also mean more fleeting attention spans, more impulsive judgments, and more dependence on superficial snapshots of events. Communicating more often and more easily can bring people closer together, but then it can also tempt us to live more in our lives in smaller information bubbles, in more intense and often isolated groupings. Greater connectivity does not necessarily mean greater connection. Information travels more quickly in greater quantities these days, but the incalculable multiplication of information can also mean more error, more exaggeration, more misinformation, more disinformation, and more propaganda. The world may be right here on our laptops, but the truth about the world may be further and further away. So what kind of... How can we avoid some of these traps? Oh, boy, that's a really good quote. No, I hadn't heard it. So, so thanks for that. Zaya. I think it is by bringing, shining a light, right? And um, like you said, the more you 
the more purposeful you are, the more you think about just your daily routine and how you're spending. Like part of it is you have to audit your habits. Just like, you know, mindless eating. Look, mindlessness happens all the time, technology or not. You know, we mindlessly eat. We mindlessly do something. So I do think there's something to be said about bringing attention back to yourself at each time. And yeah, look, I, I do think it's worth, like I said, you know, this, it's not necessarily the easy answer, but I do think it's the right answer doing your homework, not ju- jumping to judgments. I mean, look, how many times did we see WhatsApp links and it's like, this is not true. This is not true. You know, things make the rounds. <laughs> people forward things without even looking at it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, this is this is a digital habit, right? You forward things. It's just mindless. So we think the more mindful we are about what am I sharing, what am I adding to the ethos, I think that makes the world a better place for all of us. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you completely. I think at the end of the day, uh, it's it's what's in our hearts, what's what what change are we trying to make, more than letting the technology control us, right? Um, so I think we have to be mindful. We have to be self aware. I think we also have to be very um, vigilant, right? Because some of these tools are designed uh, to, uh, you know, change the chemical makeup of our brain, whether it's, you know, getting more dopamines by getting more likes, right? So it's really how we use the tool that makes the impact at the end of the day. But I was just saying you're, you're right, Kyle. I think part of it is, again, being like, a, you know, it takes a lot of discipline these days. I think that's really what it comes down to. It takes, you have to exercise a lot of discipline to not go mindlessly down a rabbit hole. It takes discipline to say, do I really need this app? It takes discipline to say, do I, you know, is this worth sharing? Do I further this or do I let kind of me be the, the, the end, you know, does it stop here? Um, same thing with emails, you know. So I, I think the old adage is, is very true. You know, is it necessary? Is it kind? And so I think these are kind of two good questions to ask yourself before you're, um, before, before you are kind of, you know, before you're a little trigger happy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Shema, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Sahil. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.